Good morning, everyone. Uh, join me and open your Bibles to John chapter 12 this morning. The Gospel of John chapter 12 and our verses this morning will be verses 44 to 50 as we'll be finishing chapter 12 today. We're now officially halfway through the Gospel of John and can I just say what a joy it's been to be able to go verse by verse um, together through this incredible gospel account with all of you and um, there's something unique about John's gospel isn't there uh, if you read Matthew uh, Mark and Luke's account they're referred to as the synoptic gospels um, and they're called that because they're, they're very similar in the way that they um, overlap the narrative um, but John's gospel is really um, completely different it's totally unique um, nearly 90% of John's gospel is not found in the other synoptic gospel accounts. It's, it's all new material. Um, and you think about it, Matthew begins with um, the genealogy of Christ, and um, he takes it all the way back to uh, Abraham. And uh, Mark uh, has no genealogy, and he begins with um, Jesus at age 30 years old in the wilderness. Uh, and there is no birth account. And in Luke, uh, genealogy, he takes it back even further. He, he takes it all the way back to, to Adam. And you would think that's as uh, far back as you can go. But John begins in eternity past. He starts his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. <laughs> and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was there in the beginning with God. It is the, the biggest and the fullest uh, picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the lens of this gospel widens. It's as if the, the Holy Spirit wants to take us even deeper into a knowledge of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And as each chapter goes, he reveals more and more of himself. Uh, we see the course seven I am statements only found in the gospel of John there are the seven signs in John uh, there's the upper room discourse that will begin next week in uh, John chapter 13 in the high priestly prayer um, but what I love most about John is the simplicity and the clarity of its teaching it is filled with the words of Christ as he reveals himself to us. And as we come to our passage today, it will be no different as once again our teacher is none other than Christ preaching Christ. You'll notice these last uh, few verses are read in your Bibles. So uh, let's begin by reading uh, John chapter 12, starting in verse 44. We'll read this once through together and then after we can look at each verse more carefully and see what's teaching. So beginning in verse 44, this is the reading of God's living and, and powerful word. It says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me only, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me 
may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment of what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. As we look at these verses today, we come to the end of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. For three plus years, he has ministered openly and publicly. He has preached the gospel far and wide from Jerusalem up to um, northern Galilee and to the towns in between. He has performed countless miracles, signs, John calls them. He has healed the sick. He has given sight to the blind. He has driven out demonic spirits. He has raised the dead. He has extended grace to sinners. And he has confronted religious Israel and its rulers. But now he comes to the end of his public ministry. Beginning in chapter 13 will be what's referred to as the upper room discourse. And there Jesus will gather his closest disciples and he will give them their final instruction before going to the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested and he will be crucified. But here is the final public sermon that Jesus preached as it is recorded in the Gospel of John. Now for the context, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there will be further teaching. There's what's called the Olivet Discourse. And there's probably some other sermons that would fit in there as well. If you look past Matthew 22, though when it gets later in Matthew, he does not go in chronological order either. But we do know that there are some sermons left still, but, but John does not concern himself with those. Instead, John takes us to the dramatic closure of the public ministry of Jesus Christ with these final words. And, and these are very passionate words by the Lord Jesus Christ, for he knows his hour is upon him, and this is no time to hold back. This is one final sermon, one final declaration of the truth concerning himself. And we are not surprised to see Jesus preach the greatest of all subjects as he preaches himself. This is Christ preaching Christ. This is Christ revealing one last time publicly exactly who he is. And one final call for the people to come to him in saving faith. And so as we walk through these passages, he will once again make it crystal clear for us exactly who he is. And for those who already have a, a living faith in Christ, I trust today that your heart 
will only be expanded for him and fortified. But if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, or if the Jesus you believe in is different than the one we read about today in Scripture, I pray that God will give you ears to hear and eyes to see as Jesus himself will tell you exactly who he is. And after looking at the facts of unbelief last week, in today's verses, Jesus stresses three main points about true living faith. And the first one we see is this. True living faith is in Christ our mediator. True living faith is in Christ our mediator. First, notice just how verse 44 there opens. It says, and Jesus cried out. And I just have to stop here and comment to say, Jesus was a preacher. This is what preachers do. They lift up their voices when they preach. And as Jesus speaks here, there is a passion. There is a fervency. There is a sense of urgency. And as Jesus brings now this last sermon, even his voice conveys the importance of what he has to say. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me. Now, unlike some of our other texts where we see um, a crowd listed in our description in the verses or a description that, that says Jesus was at the temple or Jesus was speaking to the Jews. Here, we're left to speculate, and I would guess by Jesus crying out, there's a sizable crowd here. He very well could be at the temple. Surely he's preaching to the unconverted multitudes. The Pharisees were always looming and watching, seeking to kill him. He would be preaching to them as well. And so there are plenty to whom he's speaking to who need to be saved and who need to believe in him. And so he says, whoever believes in me and and in a sense this is an invitation to those that were there that day as one last final appeal he makes to believe in him to believe in him and to the very end the, the the arms of the savior are extended wide open to those whom he speaks to and the gates of paradise remain swung wide open until the very end. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me only, but in him who sent me. And so here again we see the Lord Jesus Christ revealing the external union that exists between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father... And God, there, there, there is a unity and a solidarity. You cannot believe in the Father without believing in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cannot believe in the Son without believing in the Father who has sent him. So God, the Son, doesn't come separately or apart from God, the Father. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. A true saving faith in God is then one that believes in the Son, for there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who claim to believe in God, uh, but who do not believe in the Son, remain dead in their sins. Christ says, you cannot separate the two. There is one way to God, and that is through his Son. In the upper room discourse, Jesus will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here in verse 44, Jesus cries out, whoever believes in me, believes not in me only, but in him who sent me. It is an absolute necessity to believe that Jesus has been the one sent from above, that he has been sent from heaven, from the right hand of the Father to come down into this world of sin and sorrow, to be sent on a divine mission to seek and to save that which is lost. He says, you must believe not only in him, but in him who sent me. Thus, to reject Jesus, our mediator, is to reject God the Father who sent him. And to believe in Jesus necessitates that you believe in the God the Father as well who sent him. Knowing Christ always includes knowing the Father. You cannot know one without the other. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus will say, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so true saving faith is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and men. And so we see this divine harmony that has always existed between God the Father and God the Son as they are of the same divine redemptive purpose. And, and I want to bring this verse to your remembrance uh, once again. As it, it is such an important verse. You'll recall we, we read back in John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And as I explained before, that does not mean one person. That would be heretical. The Father and the Son are two distinct, different persons, though there is only one God. When he says, I and the Father are one, that speaks to their one saving purpose, their one saving mission. And that is what Jesus is underscoring in John chapter 12, verse 44. And so here is even teaching on the Trinity, on the, the triunity of 
God. And that's why I believe in indefinite atonement, that those whom the Father has chosen are those for whom Christ died and are for those whom the Holy Spirit regenerates. Because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one in purpose. And it's why we, we baptize, right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We don't just baptize in Jesus only. We baptize in the name of all three persons as they act as one Savior with one saving purpose. And all that truth stands behind verse 44. Deep and profound are these words. Now before we move on, I want you to notice one last thing there that is a part of verse 45. Jesus says, and whoever sees me, and to see Jesus here means to uh, behold him in his life and in his ministry, to behold his works, to behold what he has taught and what he has said, but specifically to behold his personhood, uh, to behold his being, to behold who Christ is. So he says, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, what's he saying here? And I think he means to show us that the two persons, the Father and the Son, are of the same nature. They are of the same attributes. They are of the very same essence. And so the deity that comprises the being of the Father is the very same deity that comprises the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are both God. Later in John's Gospel in the upper room, in John chapter 14, verse 8, a passage, a passage that you will uh, no doubt immediately recognize, Philip's in the upper room, and he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us, right? Uh, it, just show us the Father. You're always talking about the Father. We see you praying always to the Father. We see you show us the Father, and Jesus responds in verse 9 with these words, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you have not come to know me? Now listen to what Jesus says next. Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Amen? What a verse. <laughs> wow. Uh, by this, Jesus claims to be the exact same uh, substance as God the Father. Uh, they are two um, equally in holiness. They are two equally omniscient. They are two equally um, truthful. Um, they are both equally full of grace. They two are equally righteous. The two are equally wrathful. Sometimes people like to say the Jesus of the New Testament is better than that mean old grumpy God of the Old Testament. Nope, same God, same attributes. The only difference is the son who has humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, Philippians 2, and bore our sins. In Christ's humility and obedience to the Father, but Jesus never lost his deity. 
Jesus only added humanity. God the Son never lost his deity. He only added to himself humanity. He did not stop being God. Now before we move on, let me just um, give you a couple quick references, cross-references here that, that establish this truth for us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, is a well-known one. It says that he, Jesus, is, quote, the image of the invisible God. He is the exact image. In other words, when we see Jesus in Scripture, when we behold Christ, it is to see one who is truly and completely God. Okay, but, but I think the strongest passage while we're talking about this is from Hebrews chapter 1. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And this is critically important as we understand the deity of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says, he referring to Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, now listen to this, and the exact imprint of his nature. Um, in the ESV, they use the, the word there, imprint. Um, and they use that word because the king would have one of those big uh, signet rings. Right? And, and they would have a, a crest on it, and it's a, a sing, uh, king would um, seal shot a, a letter of um, great importance or um, a document. He would press that ring into the wax. And then he would press it and hold it onto that rolled up letter, either sealing the scroll shut. But when he, he presses it, he leaves the exact imprint. All right? This is saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is the exact imprint, the exact representation of God, the Father. The Son is identical in divine attributes and divine essence and divine nature with God the Father. And this is why believing in Jesus is such an important matter <laughs> that, that has life and death consequences because of who he is and who he claimed to be. You can't just say that Jesus was, uh, you know, just a good example for us or, or he was just a, a really good teacher, a great rabbi, or he was just another prophet sent by God. No, either Jesus was a liar and a blasphemer, or he is exactly who he claimed to be. And I'll go with the latter. What did Jesus Christ claim? He claimed that I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And he says here in one of his final sermons recorded in Scripture, whoever sees me sees him. Who sent me? God the Son is God incarnate. John, in looking back over his time with Jesus, said in the first chapter of John, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace. And truth. So we see in these verses a, a true saving faith believes not only in Christ, who is the mediator between God and men, but believes in Him who sent Him. True saving faith never separates 
never separates God the Father and God the Son. The second fact we see of a true living faith, and this is great news, this is the good news for those who are in Christ, is living faith transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of lights. And I want you to notice this in verse 46, for this is the reason he came. Jesus said to them, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. May not remain in darkness. Jesus has come into a world of darkness, into a world that's turned their back and, and played to be ignorant to God, a world that's filled with depravity and sin, into a world that is perishing, and he has come as light. Light, and it is this light that, that shines forth, that is the very character of God. This is the very essence of God. He speaks the very words of God, and he brings with him salvation. The very purpose of Christ's coming was to bring people out of spiritual darkness, potentially eternal darkness, and into the light of salvation which is the reconciliation to God through his own atoning sacrifice for sin. That is Christ. When the Bible talks of light, it's often um, a metaphor for salvation. That light might open one's eyes and rescue them from the blinding darkness that surrounds them. And, of course, this is what happened to the apostle Paul. Or should I say Saul? And... When Saul, now Paul, tells us of his encounter with the risen Christ towards the end in Acts chapter 26, he tells us that Jesus said to him, I will rescue from your own people and from the Gentiles, he tells Paul. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And this is what the Lord is saying here in our verses in verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. May not remain in darkness that those who believe in Jesus Christ will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And notice what else the Lord says. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. And what that tells us is that true saving faith will not allow your life to remain the way that it previously was. You cannot remain in the darkness if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. Jesus will pray for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 16, saying, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And, and while we are set apart and positionally holy by the blood of Christ, 
we know that we still fall and trip up and sin. But there is a growing happening, a, a refining taking place. So we do not remain in the darkness. No, we do not remain in the darkness. That it is impossible if you are in Christ. Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you indeed. Praise God. But before our salvation, our, our, our behavior bore witness to our standing in the world as we were separated from a holy God. But now, now by God's grace, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's why Jesus says here, whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. There is no way that you can come to know the living, risen Son of God and have the Spirit of God put into you and your whole life not be completely changed by it. It's impossible. And this is precisely what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 8, verse 12, one of the most important verses in all of John's gospel. It's when he said, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you follow Christ, when Jesus becomes Lord over your life, he tells us you will not walk in the darkness, but you will have the light of life. There's a transformation that happens as you are becoming a new creation in Christ. Colossians 1 verse 13 tells us, He, Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and notice this, and transferred us, <laughs> picked up and dropped over here. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Listen, we don't just want fire insurance from hell. We need a new life. We, we need deliverance. And that's what Paul says happens in Colossians 1. Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. The light of Christ does two things, I think. Number one, it exposes, and number two, it reveals. Uh, number one, it exposes the darkness, and then number two, it reveals what is hidden from us by the darkness. When Christ comes into the world as light, he exposes the darkness of our, of our sinful hearts. And he reveals who God is in truth. Uh, because in our darkened sinfulness, we were spiritually blinded to the things of God, right? We know that. We understand that. Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us in their case, speaking of when we were still dead in our sins and unbelieving. Paul says in their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So we couldn't see the glory of the gospel. Satan had blinded our minds in unbelief. So how can we see if we, we are blinded? 
It takes a divine intervention with the Son of God. Jesus says, you must be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. And the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, burns through as light. And he exposes our sins. And he expels the darkness. And as we just read there in Colossians 1, he then delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his Son. Therefore, if you believe in the Son and were bought with the blood of Christ, you will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of Christ. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 11, Paul tells us how this actually changes the way that we live. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. In uh, Paul's letter to the church in um, Philippi, he instructed the church to live as Christ lived. And he called upon them to be lights in the world. And he wrote, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain such a great word given by the apostle hold fast to the word of life and in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we must shine as lights in the world. We don't go run and hide. We go out and shine as lights in the world. So we see from Ephesians and Philippians what kind of lives we are called to live and, and what Jesus means then when he says that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. And on one hand, it speaks to our salvation. But also it speaks to our lives now as light bearers. Believing in Christ who is light calls us to live in the light, to walk as children of light, to center our minds and hearts and hands around the things of light and fleeing from anything that would bring darkness to his light. This means right believing ought to lead to right behaving. Or if you find yourself unwilling to live for Christ and to walk in the light of Christ, it's highly likely that you haven't come yet to Christ. And church, how dangerous of a condition it is to 
profess Christ, but not possess him by true and living faith. Her, here in verse 46, the call is to live as we ought to. Whoever believes will not live in darkness. Too many times now we can hear these kinds of things and fear that, well, maybe we've turned our back with justification by faith alone. And we start speaking of words of works that we must do in our life. But we may ever remember, beloved, that it is the grace of God revealed in Christ that leads us to devote ourselves to God-honoring works. Works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10 says. Works that let our light shine before them, pointing them to the one who alone gets the glory. I want to close with this thought, with the words of Christ, as Jesus, in his great Sermon on the Mount, also called us to be light bearers of his. This is in Matthew chapter 5, 14, and Jesus said to them, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What, what a simple message that every person who, who follows the Lord Jesus Christ ought to live by. Let your light shine before others. That was the second truth that we see from the text. A true living faith transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. All right, well, fact number three of a living faith, a living faith keeps us from judgment. A living faith keeps us from judgment, and might I add, by God's amazing grace. And I broke this up into two parts because this whole passage essentially addresses the fact that most of its hearers that day will reject Christ. All right? John told us in our verses last week that by and large the nation of Israel is under judgment for their unbelief. God hardened their hearts. God blinded them. And so as Jesus closes his final message, he closes it with a warning. And in verses 47 to 48, the lost are judged by the word of God. And then in verses 49 and 50, Jesus speaks the words of life. But let's begin in verse 47 and how those who remain in darkness will be judged. Jesus continues in verse 47. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them. Now here, Jesus, instead of saying, does not believe in them, he's using an alternate expression for unbelief. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, and to keep them is to obey them, to keep them is to, to follow them, to keep them is to live it out, its reality in your life. If, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, Jesus says, I do not judge him. Hmm. And by that means, he, he means um, that's not the primary purpose for which I have come. I did not primarily come to judge the world. I came to save the world. 
And why would he not come to condemn the world? Because the world is already condemned. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are condemned because we do not believe. Jesus said back in John chapter 3, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The world has already been brought under judgment by God. Jesus came to rescue sinners out of that judgment, out of the fallen world. So that's why he says, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And this is why he came. This is why he came. And I just want to return to John 3 um, again. So many great verses from John 3. Just to show you this, as Jesus has already laid this out for us in his conversation with Nicodemus. We were in John chapter 3 probably about a year ago, so if you want, just turn with me quickly to John chapter 3, verse 17. And hear it one more time. Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. And he said to them, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But here we go. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Every single one of us needs to be saved. We need to be delivered. Every single one of us needs to be rescued out from the wrath of God. And there's only one way for us to be delivered, and that is through believing in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to rescue sinners from perishing in their sins. Now, let's look at verse 48, because though his primary purpose was to save, there will be an inevitable condemnation if we fail to believe in him. So that's why he says in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. And let me just stop there for a moment. Here is the solidarity uh, between the person of Christ and the words of Christ. Just as you cannot divorce the son from the father that we talked about earlier. You cannot um, accept the person of Christ but then refuse the words of Christ. <laughs> no. doesn't work like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Is inseparably connected between who he is. His words you cannot separate from the person of Christ. And to have a true saving faith in Christ that deliver us from judgment, we believe the words that he has spoken. Don't we? In other words, you cannot have Jesus on your own terms. Sorry. You cannot have Jesus the way that you want to have Jesus. Jesus cannot be redefined by us because it's the 21st century and we've become just so much more developed and intelligent. We cannot say, I like these words of Christ, but not these ones. No. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And this is an ever-growing problem in the so-called church today, where we have, and I'll, I'll do this, progressive Christians <laughs> believing in only in parts of the Bible that work for them. 
I like this Jesus by my definitions and how I perceive Jesus to be. No. To confess Christ as Lord means you believe in the Jesus of the Bible. So he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, oh yeah, he has a judge. You bet he does. And Jesus wants that crowd that day to know that though he has come to save, there will be a judgment. And the one who judges him is none other than the one that has come to save them. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is both judge and savior. Savior and judge. And every one of us will know him in one of two ways. We will either know him as our savior or we will know him as judge. So he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So here we see that the very words that Jesus has spoken will, will be the very scales upon those which did not believe on him on the last day. And what are the words that Jesus has said? That you must be born again. That you must believe in the one and only Son of God. That whoever believes in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. And for those who would not believe, they will stand in the judgment. And the judgment is recorded for us in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. I'll just share these verses quickly because it's a glimpse into the judgment that is given to John the Apostle. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is Jesus presiding over the world as judge on the last day. And then it will be too late to call him Savior as you are standing there. If you were to have Jesus as your Savior, you must have him now. These are some sobering words that Jesus spoke as his, his public ministry is now coming to a close. But there's one last thing Jesus will say to them before the curtain will close and the veil will be drawn shut on them. In verses 49 to 50, you see Jesus speaks the word of life. Speaks the word of life. As we see once again Jesus' humility before the Father. In verse 49 it says, For I have not spoken on my own authority. And this really looks back over the entirety of, of his three plus years of public ministry. From the very beginning when he came to Galilee, 
and he came preaching, the time is fulfilled and the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1, verse 15. And, and all the way down into this present moment in time. He said, for I have not spoken on my own authority. And what that means is he did not create his own message. He, he did not come up with his own truth. Everything that has proceeded from the mouth of the Son of God has come directly from God the Father. So he says, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment of what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And this word commandment really stood out last night studying for me that uh, the, the first time it's used, it means that Jesus was commanded by the Father uh, on what to say and, and what to preach. And everything that comes out of the mouth of the Son, whether it's grace or judgment, are the very words of, of God the Father that has given him these words to say. And, and there is no pulling in a different direction that the Son is trying to do something that's different from the Father. No, again, it's perfect solidarity, perfect equality, perfect oneness in fact it says twice in the passage that the father was the one who sent the son for it was god who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son but what he means in verse 50 when he says and i know that his commandment is eternal life what does that mean what this means, I believe, is what the Father has commanded the Son to say is Son it now commands of you and of me. And what we need to understand is, is that the gospel comes as a command. The gospel is often presented at the end of the service as an invitation. That the gospel is a free offer, that the gospel is an appeal, and that the gospel is an invitation and I would say that the gospel is an offer and it is an appeal and it is an invitation come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest it is an offer it is an invitation but it's more than that it's a command it's not like you're just declining an invitation to come to someone's house for dinner no no we are, in a sense, shaking our fist in the face of a holy God and saying, I am defying you. And I will not do what you have commanded me to do. That's how serious unbelief is. Back in John 3, verse 36, we, we read these words. We spent some time and we spent a lot of time in chapter 3. If you remember, this is at the end of John the Baptist's ministry. And these are his words. He said something really interesting. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Is the gospel an invitation? Sure, we can say that. But to be clear, the Bible also says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains on him. Okay? 
So here in chapter 12, what Jesus is in effect saying is what Paul will later say in Scripture in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. This was very interesting as well. Paul said, the time of ignorance, God has overlooked. He, he's given you some time, Greeks. God has overlooked. But look at the words that come out of the mouth here that are sealed in Scripture. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So, as the one true light goes out over Israel, the Savior of the world cries out one final time. And as he calls on his own to believe, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. Jesus preached nonstop for three plus years. Countless signs and miracles. He spoke the very words of God. He spoke the very words of life. I ask you today, do you have ears to hear the words of life? Are you like Simon Peter? who said in chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I pray that you do. At this time, I would ask the leaders to come forward, please, this morning, and if you have prayers today, uh, we'd love to pray with you down front. And would you please stand as we sing the song of invitation this morning, Mercy, and thank God for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>